morning. My name is Taylor Sutton. I am the youth pastor here at Zionsville Fellowship, and it is my honor today to open up God's Word with you. So would you join me in prayer before we do that? Lord Jesus, we do rejoice this morning in your deep love for us. It is our anchor, our support, our power, and our hope. And Lord, would you help us now as we look to you in your word to to behold your glory and to be changed a little bit more into your likeness. Amen. To be a Christian is to belong to a kingdom. To be a Christian is to be a citizen of a kingdom with its own values, its own priorities, its own ways of doing things. And every Christian in every place and time is a citizen of that kingdom while simultaneously living in a culture with different values and priorities and ways of doing things. Now, it's true that every culture has values and priorities that do align with God's kingdom. It's because of that, that you don't have your cultural identity erased when you become a Christian, but your cultural identity should be transformed by being a Christian. So, for example, an American Christian should be different in some substantive ways from other Americans who are not Christians. And in the same way, American churches should be different. They should be significantly distinguishable from other American nonprofit organizations. So the question is, what should distinguish us? In what ways should citizens of God's kingdom be different? I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 9. As we continue our series in Mark's gospel, we come to a section that will help us answer these questions. What kind of people should we be if we are citizens of God's kingdom? We're going to look at Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. Mark 9, starting in verse 30 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, 
and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The kind of king Jesus is should determine the kind of people we are. The kind of king Jesus is ought to shape the kind of people we are as his followers. That's what I want to show you from this passage. What we see in Mark 9, 30 to 50 is Jesus reminding us what kind of king he is and then challenging us with three things that ought to characterize those who follow him, those who would enjoy his kingdom. So what kind of king is Jesus? That's the first part of this passage, followed by three 
things, three realities that should be true of those who would claim this king as their own. So first, what kind of king is Jesus? Well, we see this in verses 30 through 32, and the answer is simple but profound and surprising. Jesus is the kind of king who reigns by dying. Look at verse 31. He was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Verse 32, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So this is important to Jesus that his disciples understand this. This is the second time now in Mark's telling that Jesus has explained to them that he is going to die, that he is going to be killed. And once again, they don't understand. It doesn't make sense. And you can sympathize with the disciples' difficulty in understanding this when you remember what they have come to believe about Jesus. They have become convinced that this man is the king that Israel has been waiting for. They now are convinced that he is the promised anointed one, the the king who will restore Israel, who will repair the world. That's what they're expecting him to do. And they're not wrong in that expectation, but just put yourselves in their shoes. They're heading south in these chapters. They are moving slowly from the northern parts of Israel down to Jerusalem, the capital city, the city of David, the home of David's throne. And think about their position. They're going to Jerusalem in the company of David's rightful heir. And so they're probably expecting glorious things to happen in Jerusalem. Power and victory for Jesus and maybe just a little fame and glory for them. And Jesus is at pains to explain to them that they are in for a very different experience in Jerusalem. They're right to believe that Jesus will rescue his people and restore the world. What they have to understand is that that very rescue and restoration will be accomplished through the suffering and death of Jesus. So there there is resurrection, there is restoration. Jesus will be raised after three days, but that will happen only after he has been killed. He is not the kind of king we expect. He is the kind of king who reigns by dying. So now, in light of that, over the next several exchanges in this text, Jesus is going to challenge his disciples and challenge us 
with three implications for us. If this is our king, if we are following a king who reigns by dying, who rescues by suffering, who restores by losing everything, what kind of people ought we to be? Well, the first thing that ought to characterize us is found in verses 33 through 37. Followers of Jesus should pursue greatness through humble service. Followers of Jesus ought to pursue greatness through humble service. Look at verse 33. So they get to the the place that they're going. They're back in their home territory, Capernaum. And Jesus says, what were you guys talking about on the way? And the answer gives you an idea of, of where their head was at as they're moving south towards Jerusalem. They were talking about who's the greatest. Now, apparently they knew enough. They had absorbed enough to be embarrassed by this. They knew, despite the things they didn't understand, that what they were arguing about didn't quite fit with what Jesus was about. So they're silent because, Mark tells us, verse 34, on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Who's going to be the VP in the kingdom of God? There's 12 of us. What are the rankings? Which one of us might be the greatest of the 12. That's what they're talking about on the way. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to drive home an important reality for his followers. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, here it is, if anyone would be first, the greatest, He must be last of all and servant of all. So in one sentence, Jesus redefines the very definition of greatness. To be great is to be last. To be great is to put everyone else in front of you. And he goes on to explain one way you know that you're doing that is if you embrace insignificant people. Look at verse 36. And he took a child, and he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to his disciples, now follow this, he doesn't say, like he'll say in the next chapter, be like this child, although that would be true. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus is aligning himself with the population in that culture that had the least amount of status, children. And he's saying, if you embrace them, if you honor them, you're embracing and honoring me, the one that you say is king. So one litmus test that you're living out, verse 35 is that no one is beneath you. To be great in God's kingdom means to help others, 
and to feel happy about it. It's to help others and to feel that it wasn't beneath you, that it doesn't require applause and recognition to be worth it. He who would be first must be last of all and servant of all. Look, every community honors certain accomplishments. It's not a bad thing. It's just the way we operate. So schools honor those who get the best grades. Uh, Sports teams honor those who break records or, or lead the team to victory. Every community has certain things that it values and honors and thus encourages people to aspire to. Our society is the same way. There are certain things in our culture that are valued, that are honored, that receive praise and recognition, and that that people are, whether explicitly or implicitly told, be like that. Try and do what that person did. Here's the problem. Certainly a problem now. It's probably been a problem in every century that the church has sought to live this out. What we often do, rather than obey Jesus here, what we do is we define Christian greatness as simply Christian people winning at the world's status competitions. And so so we say, yeah, what it means to be a great exemplary Christian is to be a Christian, but who, who wins, who excels, who is famous and rich and successful by the world's standards. And we say, those are the kind of Christians we want to be like. The Christians that have the most public ministry, the, the, the Christians that sell the most books, the Christians who fill stadiums, the celebrities who, who become Christians, or the, the pastors who we make into celebrities, what we're doing when we say that's greatness is we're saying, yeah, we'll, we'll put a Christian veneer over the world's status game. On New Year's Day, 1999, something very interesting happened. Uh, Eleven nations in the European Union started a new currency. Now, it would take several years for the euro, the new currency, to fully replace the former currencies of these 11 countries. It started in the financial system, then they started introducing paper money, but three years later, uh, the euro for these 11 countries was the legal tender. And it is to this day, and they've added more countries. So that if you went to Europe today and tried to buy something with liras or deutschmarks or francs, it wouldn't work. Why? Because they have a new currency. Those old notes, they no longer hold any value. They're not not worth anything. And what Jesus is saying is that there is a new currency for greatness in the kingdom of God. We don't just uh, import the world's currencies for greatness 
and use it in sort of a superficial Christian way. We actually are adopting a new value system for what counts as great. And it's humble service. It's, it's laying down your life to help other people. It's, it's serving for the benefit of others, especially when no one is watching and no one will applaud. Jesus said that is greatness. That reflects the glory of our king. So followers of Jesus pursue greatness through humble service. That's the first thing that Jesus says ought to characterize those who would claim him as their king. Let's move on to the second characteristic. Followers of Jesus should pursue belonging through openness to outsiders. Followers of Jesus should pursue belonging through openness to outsiders. Look at the next exchange here. Once again, there's a teaching moment courtesy of a blunder from one of the disciples. John says in verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. He's not following us. He's not a part of this group. And Jesus' response is surprising. He says, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon able afterward to speak evil of me. Verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. Now this is very striking because notice that Jesus does not say there are no outsiders. He, he says in verse 40 that there are those who are against us. Uh, Mark tracks that story very closely. Jesus has enemies who will, in just a few chapters, put him to death. So, so there are true outsiders, those who are opposed to the kingdom of God. Jesus is not trying to say, everybody's an insider. It doesn't matter what they think about me. What he's saying is, outsiders can become insiders in God's kingdom. Outsiders can become insiders in God's kingdom. In this case, you have someone doing a miracle uh, in the power and for the honor of Jesus, and he's saying, don't try to stop him. In other words, if we're all about Jesus, then that should flavor our attitude towards other people who are also all about Jesus, even if they do that in a way that is different than us. People who, who disagree with us on certain secondary matters, we can disagree with full conviction, but have a, a posture of, of openness, a recognition that you too love the same Jesus that I do. And in the same way, this ought to flavor our attitude towards non-Christians, if for no other reason than that they too might become followers of Jesus. Here's the thing, we all 
crave belonging. And that's not a bad thing. But what we often do is we create belonging by excluding people from the groups that we're a part of and then feeling superior to all those people who are not in our group. I mean, this is the thing that really makes a good sports rivalry. What would it even mean to be a Purdue fan if there were no IU fans? Or where I come from, where I grew up, uh, to be a supporter of the University of Arizona is by definition to be a fierce opponent of Arizona State University. It is, it is a defining quality of each group to oppose the other group. But what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of God shouldn't be like that. It's not that there's no boundary. It's that the door is always open. And so there is a, a generosity of spirit that should characterize those who have found their way in to the kingdom of God. We create thick communities as Christians, or at least we should be trying to. But here's the paradox. As we're creating thick community together, we have to keep in mind that one defining aspect of a Christian community is openness to outsiders. So, what's your attitude towards Christians with whom you disagree on certain secondary or tertiary matters? What's your, your attitude towards non-Christians? Maybe you're grateful that God saved you from a place of unbelief, but you look around and you say, I'm, I'm not sure about non-Christians today. I'm not sure there's any hope for them. Followers of Jesus pursue belonging through openness to outsiders. So Jesus is a king who reigns by dying. That's the kind of king he is. And we've seen so far two realities that ought to characterize those who have come into his kingdom. Uh, the first one is that we pursue greatness through humble service. The second one is we pursue belonging through openness to outsiders. And then third, starting in verse 42, we pursue future joy through sacrifice now. Followers of Jesus should pursue future joy through sacrifice now. This is in verses 42 to 50. Jesus introduces this idea here of stumbling. And he uses it a few different ways. First, in verse 42, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or stumble, it would be better for him... If a great millstone were hung around his neck and he, were th and he were thrown into the sea. So let's stop right there. It's not totally clear who he's referring to when he talks about the little ones who believe in him. There's a few different possibilities. But regardless of who it is, the, the point is pretty clear that it, to lead one of these people into stumbling 
is to deserve hell. It would be better to be drowned violently than to do that and to receive the consequences. Now, you have to understand what he's talking about here is not just a one-time slip-up into sin. Most likely, what Jesus is talking about is leading someone away from following Jesus so that they're no longer following him. So, So we could think of it this way. People who lead other people to hell are headed there themselves. It's a serious warning. And then in verse 43, Jesus talks about stumbling blocks that we create for ourselves. Look at verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And then he he cycles through that again, talking about your feet and your eyes, saying again and again, it would be better to lose something now in the fight against sin than to preserve all of those earthly goods and go to hell. So, one thing that we see here is is a strategy for fighting sin that that many people have uh, observed and found significant, which is if you want to actually defeat the sin in your life, one thing you have to do, one strategy is to remove things from your life that cause you to stumble, even if those things themselves are not sinful. That's cutting off your hand, that's plucking out your eyes, cutting off your feet. It's a, it's a strategy. But I think more close to the main point that Jesus is making is not so much a strategy, although that's there, but a heart dynamic underneath the fight against sin. The heart dynamic is fighting your own sinful tendencies is worth it because a better world is coming. Fighting your sin now, with all the sacrifice that entails, is worth it because a better world is coming. Do you see how oriented towards the future these verses are? He doesn't just say, hey, cut off your hands. Cut off your feet. He's saying, if you don't do that, you're going to hell. If you do do this, you're headed for life. You're headed for the kingdom of God. So there's a future orientation here that underpins the daily battle against sin. Now, this does not mean that we earn our way into the kingdom of God through our obedience or through our battles against sin. Nor does it mean that we can lose our salvation by sinning. The way that I believe this statement of Jesus can be reconciled, harmonized with other statements of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament is to see it this way, that one mark of true saving faith One necessary mark 
of true saving faith is persevering in fighting sin. Let me say that one more time. One necessary mark of true saving faith is persevering in fighting sin. And we could turn that around and and put it negatively. Someone who recklessly indulges in unrepentant sin is revealing the fact that they do not possess saving faith. But why the warning? Let's say that's, that's right. Uh, why warn truly saved people about the dangers of falling away if truly saved people cannot fall away? Why would Jesus put it this way? Well, think about the way that parents take care of young children. You, you, you tell a young child, don't touch the hot stove. Don't do it. You, you issue a warning. But a parent, a good parent, does not issue the warning and then leave a three-year-old alone with a hot stove for an hour. Right? There is a real warning that the parent gives, but then a good parent will see to it that the child is protected from harm, either preventing them from touching the hot stove, being there should the child touch the hot stove to, to prevent serious injury. So the, the protection of the, the parent is bigger than the warning, but the warning is one means of the parent's protective work. So it is with God. God perseveres his children all the way to the end. He will see to it that those who belong to Christ are brought safely through to the new creation. And one of his means for accomplishing that persevering work is warnings like this one. So as we think about the Christian life, living in this dawning kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated, waiting for the future kingdom that he will finish, one thing that ought to be true of us is that we are willing to sacrifice now in view of future joy. And and here's the reality. There's a lot of joy to be had in this life. There are a lot of good things. God has given us many good gifts that we honor him by enjoying. But at the same time, obedience requires sacrifice. We live in a fallen age, and we have wicked hearts. And so to actually follow Jesus down the path of obedience and discipleship, faith, it will cost you something. There will be things you have to give up that people who are not following Jesus will not have to give up. There will be a cost to persevering in fighting sin. But the, the willingness to bear that cost for the disciple comes from the conviction that Jesus is bringing a better kingdom. That there, there is 
a kingdom and it's really breaking into this world. It's really going to be here. There really is life to enter into in the future. And so all the loss and all the sacrifice, all the fighting against your own selfish, sinful inclinations, it's worth it. You're actually, you're going somewhere. You're not just on a spiritual treadmill, exerting effort for effort's sake. So followers of Jesus should pursue future joy through sacrifice now. So the kind of king Jesus is should shape the kind of people we are. And so we've seen in this passage that Jesus, Jesus is the kind of king who reigns by dying. And that means those who would walk in the way of his kingdom should pursue greatness through humble service, belonging through openness to outsiders, and future joy through present sacrifice. Maybe it's been a while for some of you, but when you go to a theme park or a zoo even, there's usually two things you need if you've never been there before. You need a ticket. Everybody needs a ticket to get in. But you also need a map to help you navigate and enjoy and make use of whatever theme park or zoo or other attraction you've entered. Here's one way to think about what Jesus is saying here. The gospel is the ticket and the map to the kingdom of God. And what we often do is we separate those. We think, yes, the death and resurrection of Jesus gets me in. It's my ticket into the kingdom of God. It gets me in and then I leave it behind and I adopt some other map, some other guide, some other value system by which I'm going to try to enjoy life in this kingdom. But the reality is, if you do that, you have the wrong map. You have the map to some other theme park. It's not going to work. And so what Jesus is saying is his death and resurrection gets you into his kingdom, and it also shows you how to live in it. It shows you where to go, what to value, where true joy is found, how to get the most out of life under his good reign. The death and resurrection of Jesus, it's our template, it's our guide, it's our map. It's not only our ticket in. So what I'd like to ask you to consider today is, where are you pursuing greatness and belonging and joy? Have have you accepted the death and resurrection as your ticket, and are you operating by some other map. What that produces is a Christian who claims the name of Jesus but is actually exerting all of his or her ambition for the sake of his or her own name and reputation. That produces uh, churches who sing songs uh, of gratitude for salvation, but then 
set themselves in angry opposition against those who have not yet experienced that yet. Forsaking the gospel as template, as map, produces people who say, I'm so glad I'm going to heaven, but just in case, let me pursue all of the pleasure and status that I can get right now. And I'll try not to break the big commandments along the way. Do you see how different this is? To actually let the cross save us and then change us into its image. To become cross-shaped people who actually walk around reflecting the king who found glory through suffering. And, and here's, here's the thing we have to remember. The ticket and the map are both expressions of God's grace. It's not as if Jesus says, okay, I'll save you. I'll die for you so you can be forgiven and reconciled. But now, read the fine print, you owe me. Big time. Your whole life. No. The whole life that you give to Jesus is also a gift to you. Jesus did not have to include us in this restoration project that he is doing, making the world right again. He, he could have left us out completely, but instead he, he has welcomed us into it so that the rescue and the transformation are acts of kindness from him. The life of glory through suffering is a good life. It is it is the good life. So this, this path that is costly and painful and is totally based on a future none of us have seen, it is actually worth it. It is not just tolerable, not just a good wager. This is the way to live. This is the good life. To enjoy the reign of King Jesus as it unfolds in history and will come to fruition at the end. Jesus has not only included us in this by saving us, he has walked this path before us. He knows how hard it is. And by his spirit, he's walking with us now. Walking with us all the way to the end when he'll be there to welcome us into this glorious kingdom that we've been living for all along. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how good you are, how powerful you are, how wise you are. Lord, we recognize that uh, the, the saints of old in the old covenant longed to see these realities, to see your kingdom uh, come to expression, to see your Messiah reigning. And, and Lord, how blessed we are to see it, to have seen it happen in the death and resurrection of Jesus, to see it unfolding through his body, the church, to be living in anticipation of its final culmination and having the privilege of participating in the realities of that kingdom now. And so, Father, our prayer, would you help us as a church, as a people, to reflect this 
Not just at a superficial level, but deep in our motivations and desires, what we honor, what we aspire to, what we teach our children. May we be a cross-shaped people through the power of the cross and with the mighty help of your spirit. Amen.